I remember going home on Tuesdays early to write up these summaries to give to the, the store managers, telling them these are sort of all the rules and these are all the things we've agreed to and here's who you should call for this. And I swear to God, they just took them and shoved them in a drawer and no one cared, right? No one cared what we just committed to until there was a problem and then they cared a lot. So I was like, why, why don't you just set yourself up for success by understanding what you've committed to and fostering a good relationship with your landlord so that when shit happens, you're not being given a you know default notice. You, you work things out because of the relationships that you've built. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Elizabeth Souder. Elizabeth is the founder of What's Next Biz, a consulting company enhancing workplace satisfaction and performance through alignment. Prior to founding What's Next Biz, Elizabeth had been a corporate attorney for a variety of companies in the Kansas City area. Elizabeth has a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Government from Grinnell College and a law degree from the University of Kansas. You can learn more about Elizabeth at whatsnextbiz.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, I want to welcome you today, the day before Thanksgiving 2023, to the corporate couch. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, Elizabeth and I worked together. Uh, we probably were in uh, a fair amount of meetings during uh, the startup days of Sprint PCS, uh, but we uh, got connected through uh, Nick Giuliani via LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. Nick was kind enough to say uh, that I was one of the people Elizabeth should meet with. So we had a great conversation at Jinky's Hangout, 151st and Antioch. And no, I do not get any uh, kickback on that. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, excited to talk awesome. to you. We had, a, we had a great conversation. And um, yeah, so um, I usually ask a fun question that I come up with, but you know, uh, you and I had some uh post uh, email exchange after our coffee but uh um you're famous for you know where you know what song reminds you of this or your first concert oh that's true oh yeah. so here here we go so what song comes to mind when you think about your middle school junior high days oh wow okay so that would be um rapper's delight I knew all the words. I probably still know many of the words. And um, some Kansas songs. Carry on. Um, 
Oh, and then my first concert was Fleetwood Mac Rumors tour in, in eighth grade. Nice. So that I played that. Wow, you went big. I did. I got really lucky. McNichols Arena. Nice. Um, yeah. yeah. So that the all How about, um, Boston, Boston, no, more than a feeling. Oh, I love Boston. Um, yeah, that was my first album that I went and purchased. Um, Sticks, Pieces of Eight. Oh, see, now I'm just going to start going. <laughs> yeah. All right. How about Junior Prom? What song? Junior Prom was Putting on the Ritz. All right, there we go. One last one. Um, what, what song reminds you of your college basketball experience? Gosh. Well, Don Henley was pretty big during that time, but I don't think that was on our warm-up tape at all. Um, gosh, you've really... It was probably uh, Beastie Boys. There we go. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, you grew up in uh, Colorado, Colorado Springs, I believe? Yes, yeah. I did. So what was uh, fun for you growing up? What did you love doing? Well, I love the, the, the timing of this question so perfect because I just had coffee this morning with um, a woman who we walked to school together every day from third to sixth grade. Uh, and so we were reminiscing about we were part of that generation in the 70s, um, in 80s that just ran out the door, you know, at, at dawn and came back when the street lights came on. And we were, you know, just talking, we, she has three kids, I have four. And we're saying, gosh, did, did we ever let our kids do that? You know, just there, you're on your bike and you're off and you don't, someone feeds you along the way and you go climb trees and get into trouble and come home, you know? Um, so it was a very, it, it was it was a very free freeing and fun childhood i think i i would describe myself as an outdoor dog because i just any any time i could be outside was was a good day for me um and and you know obviously sledding and snow and all the mountain stuff you can possibly imagine yeah so yeah it was it was uh it was it was good times yeah how how far did you walk to school? Oh, good question. Um, it was, we were talking about that too. So it was about one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten 10 blocks, probably like big city blocks, but yeah. you had to go across a, a really busy street, still is a busy street, and they had an underpass. So there was an underpass that wow. would go under under the street um, not all the kids took it cause it smelled pretty bad right. to be honest under there. Um, and it was kind of creepy, you know, we think, oh wow, we, you know, we'd have an after school activity. We walk home, it'd be getting dark. And we went through that underpass, like Pam and I were just talking about that. Like mm -hmm. that was kind of creepy that we did that. Right. Um, but, uh, and we rode our bikes to school yeah. many times, but we, you know, we played games, like we played this game called pig and if you if if the sidewalk square had writing on it you had to jump over it or you got a pee you know and oh, so i think it probably took us you know half an hour to walk to school just because we we're always right. messing around right. yeah <laughs> I, I think back i i walked to school first grade through fifth that was elementary school for me and i don't know i maybe it was three four tenths of a mile maybe a half mile but like 
I couldn't even see my kids walking that. I mean, I'd be like, you're right. not walking this. <laughs> I, but uh, I digress. But you're right. It was the era. Yeah. You know, we would go play a lot of sports and everything was, you know, the less um, organized. I, I mean, I didn't play. I played my first organized sport was Little League and then uh, at, at nine um, and I didn't play organized football till seventh grade and I didn't play right. organized basketball till seventh grade, but it was yep. all pickup, you know, after school and we changed with the yeah. seasons, football in the fall, basketball in the winter. Um, I just, I think it was so important for and I actually just listened to Steph Curry on a podcast talking about this, but it's important that we play more than one sport. You know, this this business of kids just doing one thing over and over. I mean, the repetitive stress injuries and just and then and you're not using the other muscles in your body. You know, so I'd swim in the summer and then I'd you know run track or play basketball or volleyball in the fall and basketball in the winter and then track again and soccer you know i played soccer i'm not good at soccer but i did it because it was right. fun probably yeah. the only thing i didn't do was softball that was just was not a thing right. here um i guess we did more skiing kind of stuff but we just didn't play softball so when i joined a lawyer's league in uh in law school because they all thought i was athletic oh for sure you can play softball i'm like i'm not an implement sport person and Sure enough, I I showed them I am not an implement sport person. <laughs> and implement mean like like it, look if you put a bat or you know if you put a racket or a, I mean I'm good with the, when I'm touching the ball right yeah yeah oh funny but I was not I was I had the running bunt so I could I could bunt and run really fast yeah. but I I never got the ball in the air so I have to ask since uh, we're in a a similar age demographic and you're competitive. Have you played pickleball yet? I have played pickleball. Okay. Yeah. Wanted, so that's a wrap. I, yeah. I am. I have figured that one out. Okay. Yeah. I enjoy it. It's kind of like a adult size uh, ping pong. Ping pong. Exactly yeah. what I say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, so what aspirations, did you have an aspiration as, as a child? Hey, when I grow up, I want to be this. What was this for you? If you I didn't, I, it wasn't, it wasn't that. So my whole family, extended family included, are either like Episcopal priests or teachers. And I, all I kind of knew is I didn't want to do either of those things. Um, I, I danced ballet for a long time until I was told I was going to be too tall. And so I had these aspirations of performance at some level that didn't ever go anywhere. I guess I ended up performing on the basketball court instead. But um, but I, 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 I wasn't singularly focused on one thing, which I think has sort of played out in my life, to be honest. Yeah. I think that being open to whatever else. But I also didn't have a lot of modeling about what else you did. Like, I didn't know what a business person did. I didn't understand right. what does that mean, yeah. right? I knew what a doctor was. I knew what a lawyer was. Sure. But I didn't really know what else there was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you go to college. Um, Grinnell? Grinnell. Grinnell, Grinnell College. Yeah. Grinnell College in Iowa. Yeah. So what, what was the uh, thought process behind being a political science and government major? It was actually the first 
class I took in college that I absolutely loved. Like I it was finally, it was that aha. Oh my gosh. I think, you know, I think it was de Tocqueville's democracy in America. And I just, I, and I was the geek sitting in the front row raising her hand because I was so excited to talk about this yeah. topic. And, you know, I take in history and I take in religion. I, I, I did enjoy my re religion classes, but um, it, it just, it, there was that spark. I think that was it. And, and I was just hooked. And I remember I didn't declare my major until, and I think someone else that you've interviewed said this too, until like the very last day of my sophomore year. Uh -huh. um, and I ran across the campus chasing down Professor Strauber, who, I, by the way, I'd never met. And I said, would you be my advisor? And he was known as being this, he was from New York. He was a total hard ass. <laughs> he was really difficult professor. And I, I think he was just flabbergasted that I was asking him to be my advisor. I mean, yeah. it was it was pretty funny. Um, but uh, but no, I I I absolutely I love that I love the study. I I wrote my thesis on the Salt II Treaty. You know, it's like wow. oh my gosh, the stuff that we I mean, it does it feels very irrelevant at this time. But yeah. it was uh yeah, I was all in. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, what do you have a uh, like a political figure that's a hero to you that, or that you really admire? Wow, um, I. I do go back to the founding fathers. I go back to the James Madison and mm. uh, in the Federalist Papers and and just I I like reading about the vision of America and mm -hmm. the the idea of it because it's you know the the further you dig it's a fragile concept um, upon which this is built. It was an idea, you know. It was just this idea that was born and it it had, like I said, a lot of fragility to it and um, complexity. And there were, there were people that were very concerned um, with the direction that it, that it would go. So it's, you know, history informs right, yeah. the, the present. And um, I, I like those supporting figures, I feel in, in history and, and even in leadership, you know, I like to know the Harry Hopkins, as opposed to the FDR, like what was it like to be in that room? What was it like to be that advisor? Because right. um, that the, those are such critical um, characters. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you go back and you know, I uh, I, uh, I think Walter Isaacson did the Ben Benjamin. Frank, oh yeah, Benjamin Franklin, fantastic I mean, book. Fantastic. I mean, just the the brilliance of the founding fathers. I mean, yeah. really, it's just you know special, and you know, we can get into a divisive conversation that people yeah. with you know Jefferson owned slaves and what you know, but right, what, you know, right. Really, I mean, they're, they're the concept. Yeah, right. They're as flawed as the rest of us. Guess right. what? You know, um, right? Yeah. So, but but in just yeah, in in terms of the the discernment and the diversity of opinions and yet look what happened right uh wow. so you, you I, you're a competitive person i think that's fair to say yeah. so um i did a little research you're still on the your college list of that you have the third most steals in a game nine you're the 17th <laughs> leading all-time scorer and uh fifth in rebounds in the game and fifth in rebound averages 
uh, average per game, 7.8. So where did you get your competitive fire? Uh, as That's probably always my, it's most definitely from my father, I think. Um, my dad, I grew up, my dad is, was a professor at Colorado College, taught British history. And, but I, what I remember the most was going when he played faculty basketball. And my dad actually had a false front tooth because he like got elbowed and, and, and he, and then he would also um, dislocate his shoulder and and he would just like literally pop it back in because (sighs) he was like, he's so, he, he was just very, very competitive. And I don't think that that's something you can necessarily be taught because it wasn't something I was, you know, you, you see these parents on the sidelines today and you're like, oh my gosh, my dad was insistent that my brother and I not play basketball until I think we were 10. I think he was just, he, 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 the, it, and, and and it, my brother was benched by my dad for poor sportsmanship and he was not allowed to play the next game. So my dad was very, he was very competitive, but he also had very high standards. Like there was no, none of that nonsense, you know, happening. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, you know, uh, I, I would just say most uh, parents uh, of, you know, that generation would have been more, I would think the majority of them would say, you know, you're going to play sports and kind of live mm-hmm. out their dreams through their children a lot uh, will do that. So that's an interesting concept. What What do you think made them a little different there? Um, Probably his own upbringing I would imagine was um, had a lot to do with that. And then I think also that recognition that you, you, he also wanted, look back then there wasn't any of these smaller balls either. Everyone just played with the regular size basketball. And, and he also, he wanted, he didn't want us to develop bad habits. So, you know, a kid shooting that big ball at that hoop, you're going to be shooting it off of your shoulder in, in it, in it. So he was very, very specific on fundamentals. Like we, I'm sitting right outside the, the basketball hoop in, in the, in the gravel driveway, by the way, this is not a paved thing. Oh yeah. And, and you had to deal with like the funky bounces, but you know, he, we'd lay on the floor and do backspins, you know, with the, with the ball. So we, we understood the right form. And um, so he was very particular about ensuring that, that we knew the fundamentals. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. So you graduate, tell us about your first job out of college and how you got it. My parents give to me my, when I graduated from Grinnell was a one-way ticket anywhere I wanted to go except home, um, which was their way of saying you're not coming home and staying in our basement, which I think was maybe something what was happening, I don't know, when we all graduated. But um, so I moved to Boston. I had an aunt and uncle. They had four kids, and they invited me to stay with them in Cambridge. And I just thought, I've never been lived on the East Coast. I've never lived anywhere but Colorado and a year in England. Um, and... I thought, okay, let's just try this thing out. So I got hooked up with a with a recruiter and went on an interview at Mass General Hospital and ended up working for a gastroenterologist in his office. Um, and it was 
you know, it was, it was a, it was a good, it was an interesting first job. It was one of those where I was sort of the office manager slash secretary slash, and I ended up doing a bunch of clinical research for him, compiling some studies and um, taught myself Lotus, which I think was the precursor to Excel, oh, wow. yeah. you know, and uh, Lotus was located right across the Charles river from the hospital. And I would, I went over there and got some training and, Oh, wow. So I, that's how what I used to compile. So it was the first and what I think if I look back on my career, it's just, uh, okay, you this is the job that you're paid to do. And then these are all the other things that you do as a result of it. And after a year, I realized that, A, I was a Midwesterner. I, there was no way I was ever going to fit into Boston. Um, it was great town. I had great friends, but I was not an East Coaster. And and I didn't want to keep doing that, right? I knew I needed to find something else. Um, it was funny when I left, they they threw a massive party for me. This was a, so all the nurses from the unit came and all the other doctors and the, and the fellows, because it's a teaching hospital, and they gave me this trophy and it was the hard ass award. Wow. So I was known as a hard ass, which I just think was hilarious because what did I know? You know, I was this kid right. out of college. <laughs> Wow. Um, you impressed them. So it, it was a great, it was a great experience. They yeah. sort of let me like take it into different directions. And um, yeah. And then I, I studied for the, um, the LSAT went at B and I went to BU. I remember it's like the seventh floor. And I, when we finished, we all had to get on these elevators and go down and all these idiots are talking about the test. And I'm like, shut up. I just want to, <laughs> just want to get out of here. Um, so I applied to law school in Colorado and Illinois and KU. Um, my advisor gave me a list of schools to apply to. And KU gave me the most money. And I had a friend from growing up in Colorado Springs who was at KU for law school and another friend who is at CU and my friend at CU was miserable and my friend at KU was having a great time and the law school was right across the street from Allen Fieldhouse and there you go. KU had just won a basketball championship so it didn't wasn't a great you know I was like I'm all in right but I never for a moment Jeff thought I was going to stay in camp I I, right. I could maybe get to the plaza by the time I graduated but I really just had right. it, it was the furthest thing from my mind that I would still be living there so what what made you go to law school uh honestly couldn't think of anything else to do like I got this poli sci degree from this liberal arts college I know I can do this sort of, but I didn't really know what else to do and I remember having a a meeting with my advisor before I graduated from college and, and talking to him about law school. And he said, unless you really want to go, don't go now, go do something else. And that was probably the best advice yeah. I ever got because my parents had just gone right into graduate school. Right. And the, so right. they were a little confused, like, why aren't you go get your master's or go continue studying poli sci. And I just was like, I know I don't want to, I thought that only that that was only going to lead me to teaching and I didn't want to do that. Um, so I, I, it was sort of a default thing. I wish I could say it was like some right. massive life ambition, but it wasn't. Yeah. And I, uh, in 
couple of our uh, email exchanges, you talk about, you know, high school and kind of being a, a learner, but you weren't intellectually yeah. curious. So, but, you know, obviously when you're deep in a three-year law program, you're, yeah. it's all about studying and it, did your habits change from like high school? Yeah, to law so school? I, that's a great point because you're right. I, I was not, I didn't love school. I wasn't an intellectually curious person. I think I did well in school because I was competitive and I wanted to to win, you know. Um so I studied enough to do well. But um but in, really until I got to that poli sci class, I that, that that spark hadn't been there. The thing about law school is it's teaching it it's interesting my my second child is now at 1L at University of Colorado so I'm sort of reliving that experience through her, but it's so much more about teaching a, a new way to think. And that felt very natural to me, that that discerning view, I call it the, you know, the chess board, seeing the whole board on a, a, and, and anticipating moves. And, and so that issue spotting and, and analytical thinking and drawing out an argument and reading a case and coming up with a counter argument and reading the, I, there's something very um, sort of logic games about it, which felt so different than just learning the, the subject itself, right? So it's as if it's teaching you to think like a lawyer while learning about torts or while learning about property. And you're, the expectation that you're gonna walk out of class remembering all those rules, it's less about that than you, then you know that there are rules and you know that there are these exceptions and you know to look for them. Um, and you sort of know how to build a case or you know how to build a contract and you know you can anticipate what what a good outcome looks like, uh -huh. um, which feels very much like sports, right? Yeah. It feels like there's this tactical element to um, preparing for a basketball game, right? Or to preparing to play basketball. Yeah. And then the coach kind of sets in motion what what the strategy is going to be. Right. And and it's not always the same. Right. And the same thing doesn't work every time. And that's the, that's the law. And and that to me is sort of one of the reasons that I, I became, I don't know, disillusioned is the right word for it. But this commoditization of, of the legal profession, as in you can just go to legal zoom and print out a contract. It's just, it's, it so misses the point. There is an intellectual element to it and it and it does require some knowledge and, and customization. And, and there's a reason that they're professionals that are trained to do it. Yeah. Juan, I love the law school lingo, you know, 1L. That's that's cool. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I have a deep legal um, philosophical question for you. So I hope you're ready for it. <laughs> who Who is a better attorney Harvey Specter or Mike Ross? Oh my gosh! Um, you don't have to. <laughs> that's no, a I mean, reference for all those people who are not watching. But, yeah, I mean, I like the Mike Ross version a little better, but yes, yeah, all good. Harvey's not bad. Uh, Donna's my favorite character, though. As we, of course, see, that's the most important. That let's talk about who really runs that place. Right, uh, it's Donna. And actually, the close second is the the other uh, assistant, uh, Charlene, not Charlene. Charlene, yeah. yeah Charlene, uh, yeah. yeah. They're, 
they're both great. Anyhow, uh, see, we go everywhere on this podcast. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> great question. <laughs> um, so you graduate, get a, a, a local attorney position uh, yep. in Lawrence. Tell us a little bit about that. I worked for this great guy. I mean, I it, law jobs are a little tricky to come by um, in the early 90s. Um, and by then I was dating my husband, which is a whole other story. But um, yeah, Dan Watkins was solo practitioner. And it it's, again, one of those you know, God, the universe, everything moments, because he not, he sort of practiced law so that he could do the other thing. He was very politically um, connected. He ran mm, Slattery's campaign, I think for, for governor and, and Senator Kathleen Sebelius. So he was very politically connected. He was also, I think, president of the chamber. So this law thing was something he did to support his four kids and his family. Um, but he was just, uh, he was, I learned so much from, you know, talk about a, a integrity um, and, and, and really being of counsel to his clients. And we got to work on this fabulous project where um, it's, I'm going to date myself once again, as if I haven't already 95 times. Uh, we, we did, we were in charge of the land acquisitions for the South Lawrence traffic way what's now sort of k10 right. loop around to uh i-70 and that was a fascinating project because we were you know negotiating with land owners who, to try to avoid eminent domain um proceedings but then the haskell indian nations university also had a great deal of land that was impacted and so there we got into some some really interesting um, sort of EPA and Native American um, issues and negotiations for relocating wetlands and and sacred spaces for them. So it was one of those projects that was once in a lifetime, and now I get to drive on it all the time and think, yeah. oh, yeah. nice. I help I help make this happen. Yeah. So coming out of law school, what kind of what was the biggest surprise actually working for, uh, you know, in, mm. in practicing law? What was the biggest? Yeah. Surprise? Well, first of all, as everybody knows, law school has nothing to do with preparing you to practice law. Right. It, yeah. it does a great job of preparing you to teach it, which is why all the people that do really, really well in law school go on. They just go right back and start teaching it again. Right. Um, so it is, there, yeah, so now we're talking the practical side of, of what is it? To, and this is, I mean, early days of Westlaw and internet kind of like, we're still in libraries looking at books. And right. so when you talk about writing a contract, you're, you're literally starting with a blank piece of paper and, and, and building it out. So it was a lot of research. I mean, I think that's pretty common when you first come out of right. law school is, you, you know, you really do learn how to research pretty well in, in law school. So that's sort of becomes your job um, primarily. And I think that's true regardless of, of where you work, whether you work for a big firm or a prosecutor's office or, you know, solo practitioner like I did. Um, I think what was cool about working for Dan is that the, the type of work was so varied. You know, we also, helped build the Tanger outlet mall. And then uh -huh. we helped, you know, let contracts for highway projects. And then for that same company that owned the highway projects, we helped 
them get their kids out of jail when they got a DUI. I mean, it was yeah. sort of, it was all over everything all over the board you do yeah you just do it all which is fabulous because then you realize you can you know there is that fake it till you make it but you you make it and you make a difference yeah so then you go on and we share this common experience that we and we've talked about you go to sprint pcs as a corporate attorney tell us how you got that job from a you know a small yeah so this is like so this is a dan another dan walk-in so I, I applied for this job. I think it was actually in business development because um, they're still building out the legal department. So this was in, and the hiring manager recognized Dan's name on my resume as a reference. I mean, that's how this stuff happens, yeah. right? So um, there are no coincidences, for, right? There are no coincidences. And then I think Bernie liked me because I was a lawyer, right. which I thought Bernie was the most terrifying individual ever, <laughs> but he cultivated that. <laughs> yes, he did. That air of, <laughs> and he and he laughs about it now. Um, yeah. Whenever I whenever I see him, um, so yeah, I was hired to negotiate the first seventy-two or whatever hundred and twenty, I think it became leases for retail stores because back then, you know, the idea of a phone company having a storefront was no unheard of we had to have a presence through which to sell these phones so uh i was made a part of that retail store team which let me you know i worked with people in finance and marketing and i was i was on that team with the architect and the real estate agents and um it, that was such a fun time it yeah. really i mean you were there it was yeah. it was definitely and before well, you know, when I first joined, they were they were still building out that team. So I got put on different kinds of assignments. And I remember I had to um, Bernie came to me and said, I need you to go to Fort Worth tomorrow and negotiate a tax abatement for our call center. And I was like, holy shit, I don't have any idea what. It-. And again, right. No, no internet, no well, Google. It's like, so I'm yes. going home and like combing through anything I can find. Okay, right. What am I going to do? Go, yeah. so the next thing you know, I'm on a plane the next morning with someone from the call center group and we go meet with these people. And a- apparently we got it. I'm not, and I can't right. really remember the entire conversation, yeah, yeah. but I remember I, I came back and yeah. ran into Bernie and goes, way to go. Wait, wait to, yeah. but was he it, just And it was a it. huge call center. It was, it was a huge call center. Yeah. yeah. So it was, um, it was just that, you know, dive in there. If you've got common sense, uh, and that's another thing. I think I've, I've told you this too. Al Kurtz, who was, I think, our COO, I, I chased him down one evening saying, you know, Mr. Kurtz, I need someone to sign this lease. I don't know if the, the amount is way over my pay grade. Um, who, who, and he said, well, you look like a smart gal. Why don't you figure that out? You know, we, what, what do we pay you for? You know? Right. And so I went and found someone in finance and said, can you sign this? And I said, sure. And, you know, but it was, the idea was let's just go get this shit done and not worry about bureaucracy and policy and whatnot. Uh, I've worked uh, with a lot of chief legal officers, but you're uh, the one we had Joe Gensheimer was probably the yeah. funniest uh, chief legal officer uh, that he I've was a character. <laughs> Great guy. Yeah, Joe. Joe is famous for walking around in a sock, stocking feet, you yeah. know, and 
and just popping into your office and putting up his feet and saying, what the hell are you doing today? You know? Uh, yeah. But he was a good guy. Good guy. Good person. Um, so what was your big takeaway from a career perspective at uh, PCS? Oh my goodness. I just, I absolutely love the, it was so creative, the fast pace, creativity, um, ability to innovate, really being open and, and the idea of building something out of nothing. The one thing that I, that I, um, that always kind of bothered me, I will say this about PCS was there so many sprint people that were there and, and they, they ended up sort of biting off, I don't know, their nose to spite their face. Um, they made a lot of technology decisions based on let's not do what Sprint does instead of like what's best for the company. Right. And I just, I thought, I thought, I found that sort of emotional just toxicity around let's not be Sprint was so like, yeah. where, did, where did you think this thing was going to end up folks? Like did, Right. In what universe wasn't Sprint PCS going to eventually be part of Sprint? And then we're going to spend all this time and money undoing all these yeah. technology things. But yeah. um, but most of the, I mean, I met some of the most amazing women there. We had like, we just formed our own little wine group. Like, I think I was married, but you know, didn't have kids. And, right. you know, we, so we just, we had this really innate, I think you, you knew, you and I do it right. We, you, you worked there. Okay. You know what that felt like. Those, those right. are heady days yeah. of, of building on a network and, and I guess just literally getting shit done because we were to have this great product, you know, CDMA. I still remember sit, sitting in a meeting and saying to somebody like totally truthfully, what is a T1? And they about fell out of their chair right. like I was some right. sort of idiot. I'm like, well, right. why would I know what a T1 is? I'm right. doing CDMA, right. you know? That's funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we talked about, I mean, it's in $1995, it was a $10 billion funded yeah. startup. I, I still think it's the biggest of all time. So just yeah. Um, so you leave there after about 10 years. It, it comes into the sprint fold. I think we talked about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it just wasn't the same environment, right? So you were kind of, you wanted to kind of move on and, uh, and yeah, I wanted to move on. And it was, again, it, this was, I think I left after the Nextel deal. And, you know, it, I mean, let's be honest, like the, so much of the value and the fun and everything we built at PCS was just, it'd been so poorly managed and, um, by the time you know sprint took over and uh it was sort of disheartening um i think it i will say i had some great experiences working for the local division harry campbell was one of my clients and and there were some really fun innovative things going on in local which sounds funny like yeah. a local carrier having innovation um but yeah i think i'd reached the end of the road uh, at the next at the time of the next deal and I, it was all around the time of sort of Sarbanes-Oxley was, was coming out and I had been in a series of, you know, CLEs, continuing legal ed classes and learning about what these new SEC requirements were going to be, et cetera. And the meta guy who was a, a lawyer, but acting as a COO for a small company in Olathe. And I remember saying to him, just don't put me in a room and make me negotiate the same contract over and over again. And I'm, I'm there. And guess what? 
that's what they wanted me to do. And I, and I just, I said, I, I actually had spoken those words. So yeah. I didn't last long there. Right. And again, by then I had four kids. Um, I ended up <laughs> sort of taking a year off not intentionally, but just sort of happened. And, but in that year, I helped start a couple of local charities. Charlie's House is one of them. I think the other one's defunct. I sat on some boards um, and one of those boards went through a series of, of issues with its, with its executive director, um, but the, the organization did. And so I and another, a partner from Blackwell Sanders at the time rewrote that we, we got into the bylaws, the bylaws had not been touched since the sixties. They'd been amended a thousand times. And as I feel is true with any of those sorts of amendments and policies themselves, they are nothing but a roadmap to everything that went wrong in the organization. And it was time to, you know, turn a new leaf and and determine what this organization was going to be like going forward. And so after that um, exercise, Britain said, hey, if you are ever interested in coming in house or coming to a firm, let me know and I'll set something up. And and I didn't take him up on it right away. I, I kind of sat on it for a while. And finally, my husband, I think, said, um, you're you're working a lot, but you're not making any money. Would you would you care to make some money? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Subtle. Um, right. Very subtle. But, and and so on this very snowy, I so remember this distinctly on this very snowy January day in 2008, I went to Grand Street Cafe and had lunch with Jim Ash, the head of the corporate um, group at, at Blackwell Sanders and my friend Britton Gibson. And we just had a conversation. And so this is something I tell young people and, and anyone out there interviewing all the time is don't don't think of it as a as an interview. Think of it as a conversation. You know, it really was an yes. exploration into yeah. what are you looking for? What are you looking to do? And again, I was able to say, look, I've got four kids. I really enjoy picking them up from school at three o'clock and being a mom. But I and but I also want to work during the day and get paid for it. And I don't want shit work. Like I don't want that job that you give to the to the part time working mom. Right? right. I don't I want a meaty real job. Mm-hmm. And so they said, great, let's figure that out. Let's make that happen. And uh, and so I started working there. And like as soon as I started working, the they merged with Hush and Eppenberger. So that was another very interesting, like, this is my gajillionth merger now I'm living through. Right. Um, and so I know I helped him with some integration stuff and here and there. But what really happened was in, um, you know, the fall of 2008, the economy crashes. And I get this email from Jim Ash saying, we need someone to track what's going on in Washington. Will you be that person? And I said, hell yeah. Right. So once again, I'm just throwing myself into this. I didn't know anything about banking law. I had no idea, but I had, I remember calling IT and saying, I, I need two monitors because I need to watch what's going on on C-SPAN and like write memos for our clients and our other attorneys to understand what this crisis is all about and what's going to happen. So that just sort of became my job, right? My I became the sort of special project um, 
you know, support attorney you know, for issues of the day. And that, you know, turned into the, um, the Economic Recovery Act, turned into the Dodd-Frank. Um, and so all of that just led to more work and more work and trainings and keeping people apprised of what was going on. And, um, and, and, the, and the organization itself was going through its own changes, right? It's trying to figure out what it's going to be as, as Hush Blackwell. Um, and so that was also very interesting to be a part of and to watch that all emerge because they went through some dramatic changes in the 11 years I was there. So you have a, a 11 year uh, run at Hush Blackwell and then you decide to be the uh, start your own business. Uh, what's next biz kind of what walk us through that process and yeah. what was the catalyst to, to drive that decision and yeah. what you're going to do it, because it was... you're a lawyer really by trade and right. what you're doing now is very interesting in terms of you know what, how you're trying to help companies and individuals yeah it's um in it in my mind of course it all makes perfect sense but i i get it that it's why would you stop believe me i got that question why would you stop being a lawyer um and it's not that I've stopped. I'm still licensed. I still do stuff for clients from time to time, but I just don't market myself really as a as a lawyer. Uh, but this idea of organizational health, it you know, getting back to all those mergers that we lived through, you and I did, and I you know lived through it at Hush. There was just always this lack of attention to what are we doing with these two cultures that we are, that we're bringing together? There's these business combinations that no one, and I'll never forget asking one of our managing partners at Hush after, I think it was two or three years after the merger saying, when are we going to talk about this? When are we going to deal, address the issue that Hush was a very different place than Blackwell and we're having a hard time here. He said, Oh, we're never going to talk about it. It's too hard. Like that's the hard thing. And I, and the same was true with the Sprint Nextel merger, right? I mean, oh. two completely different cultures. I mean, it was true with Sprint PCS taking over, you know, merging into Sprint. I mean, uh -huh. the, the kinds of things that were being said about each other during that period. I mean, again, you cannot make up how petty some people were and about one way being better than the other and and it was so emotional emotionally charged and yet they didn't want to deal with it because it was emotional it just didn't make sense um so there was that component so there was a sort of corporate culture component to it there was also and this really goes back to the beginning of sprint pcs when i was negotiating all those retail store leases and this is just an example right but i would i remember going and going home on tuesdays early to write up these summaries to give to the, the store managers, telling them these are sort of all the rules and these are all the things we've agreed to and here's who you should call for this. And I swear to God, they just took them and shoved them in a drawer and no one cared, right? No one cared what we just could, committed to until there was a problem and then they cared a lot. Right. So I was like, why, why don't you just set yourself up for success by understanding what you've committed to and fostering a good relationship with your landlord so that when shit happens, you're not, you, you're not being given a you know, default notice. You, you work things out 
because of the relationships that you've built. But if everything is so disconnected and no one really is, is looking at aligning what we've committed to through the operations, I mean, the number of times, Jeff, that I would you know, be working with billing uh, when I'm negotiating a contract and saying, can we even do this? Can we even meet this obligation? Right. And they say, there's no way in hell. And then the, the product people are saying, but, but we have to, that we have to say that to get the deal. And it, anyway, the, the lack of alignment, right. The, the lack of alignment between who we say we are and how we're, we're behaving was just, it was eating at me. Right. And through a series of uh, sponsorships that the firm had done with like startup communities, I'd become gotten involved in, in several organizations and through that learned this area of organizational health. And I read Patrick Lencioni's book, The Advantage. And in there, you know, he's highlighting companies, many of which you've talked about on your show, like Southwest Airlines, um, and when I, where they just have success because they are attentive to their core values and core values being really the behaviors of an organization. We all have personal core values. Well, so do organizations, whether they're, whether they like them or not. Right. So why not be intentional about them and then have them operationalize them into the business The in my experience, culture had been those things that HR was responsible for, and we had like Red Friday and Chili Cook-Off, and that's our culture, right? right. But it, to really be authentic, I thought you you really, this idea of operationalizing the core values, uh, make the right thing easy, right? If, if this is the behavior, uh -huh. this is who this, this is what this company, this organization represents, who it is in the community and how it's distinguished itself from its competitors in a way that that mean that the reason you work for AT&T and not Sprint is why right that you're uh -huh. drawn to that I always say hey look Jack Welch GE they had a culture you knew exactly what you were getting it wasn't one in which I would choose to work but it worked for a lot of people right so you can choose to as long as you're doing it with intentionality and, and authenticity that's fine it's these ideas of we're going to be everything to everybody and we're going to be the best law firm and hire the greatest lawyers and attend to our clients. You know, well, guess what? That's what they all say. What right. distinguishes you? Why would someone want to do business with you over another firm or another company and, and make that your distinguishing characteristic and say, no, say no to the misaligned yeah. vendors and, and client opportunities. And, and over and over again, both at Sprint and at Hush, I had these experiences experiences um of trying to convince uh, you know my senior management to say no to something right. because it was only going to crater us or distract us um and also at the leadership level this idea of transparency i mean i cannot tell you how many wasted hours occurred at sprint every single time there was rumors of a layoff or rumors of a oh, yeah. an acquisition oh, yeah. or rumor i mean the lost productivity oh, was staggering. And I'm thinking these are real dollars we're talking about people. Oh, yeah. And it's all, you know, it's so avoidable. I think at the end of the day, I felt like so much of this was avoidable and it was like money just laying on the floor, waiting to be scooped up and put back into the business. If we could have that alignment and that authenticity and that transparency, um, 
people wouldn't leave, right? You're going to, your retention and all, all those yeah. issues. If you could just please walk consistently um, and, and it embrace this idea of organizational health. So I developed a program <laughs> so wisely in uh, 2020 and then the world shut down. And so I did a little pivot for a year. And then in October of uh, 2020, sitting at, sitting around a fire pit at a friend's house with like four five other women we'd all kind of done these pivots and we we're all kind of talking about what what we were working on and i said i really want to help organizations operationalize their core values and this woman sitting next to me turned and said oh my gosh we have to talk she had just um opened up her own pediatric she'd separated from her partner opened up her own pediatric dental practice and with the desire to have a values-driven organization. And she said, I've been working on this for six or nine months and I, and I don't know how to do it. And I said, well, let me help you because I've got this program that I've laid out and let's go to lunch. And sure enough, she hired me. And it was a fantastic experience because here I had a leader who wanted to do this. Wow. I mean, that's the best client, right? Is the one who wants to do what, what, what you what you want to do for for them and um so together we we really walked through this for a year and within a year she opened up another office she, you know she she went through part of that process of course when you say that we go through the values identification process and verification and then you start to operationalize them people are going to leave because it, they're right. going to it's going to freak them out and right. that's fine you right. want them to make that decision right rather than you making it for them. Right. But so they just, they deselect it out. And then that makes room for the aligned people to come and join. So that was such a fantastic experience. And then I learned a lot through that right. process and I got more clients as a result of that. And then I started, you know, that sort of developed into some leadership coaching because you can't really just do this, do the organizational health piece in a vacuum. Right. You have to, get leadership on board and the number of leaders who would say, Oh, I really want this. And then you'd start working with them. And it turns out they, what they really wanted was for you to go fix their people. Right. That's, that's not, they've got to be willing to look in the mirror and accept the fact that whatever is, is ailing them at the moment. Um, it probably had something to do with their own behavior yeah. and some of the choices that they've made. Um, so that became a natural, and then, you know, great friends like, Linda Endicott and Harry Campbell and Andre Davis. And I mean, they've, they've just been great mentors for me in, in developing this leadership development part of what I do. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's so key. And I, uh, you know, you talk about a lot of things, you know, uh, you know, when there's an information vacuum, people fill up the vacuum with their own, you know, thoughts mm. of what's happening and they're, you know, 80% of the time they're wrong, you know, so it's, and you're right, exactly. a waste of productivity. I was involved in one, I started with a company about eight weeks before a, a big merger got, fi uh, acquisition got finalized. And it was, it was, it was a, a counterexample, I mean, a, a successful merger acquisition because the cultures were so similar. So it was Beringer Ingolai Animal mm. Health and Fort Dodge Animal Health. 
and I had just started, so I never met any of the regional sales directors until they, you know, the day it was, um, the day after it was finalized, we all met in Kansas City and um, people were coming in from all over and I didn't know who was a Ford Dodge person and who was a Bering Ram because Wow. the, those are the people was, so that's, you know, example of a successful merger. Um, so yeah, I love, I love, uh, what, what you're doing and the culture thing and because nobody thinks about the culture thing. It's all about the dollars and the Yes. synergies and, you know, nobody looks at the culture. I'm like, yeah, probably should look at that. You know, like, first, I yeah, mean, it should right. be one of the first things that you evaluate what's going to be the impact on Yeah. this. Because Um, Yeah. we're Do forming you help? a new organization. Yeah. Do you help companies prior, like evaluating, is this a good merger or it's after the fact they, now they have two Why more. do you want to do this? Well, so I've done this in a couple of different ways. Not, not as frequently as I would like, but um, I get, one of the first things I did was I, I came up with a founder's agreement uh, and it, that I just made up on, you know, survey monkey or whatever. And I, and I would just give it out for free to founders to say like, this seems to be your prenuptial agreement, right? You need to have these conversations now because so many times, you know, those that that initial capital infusion that a startup gets, it just goes to lawyers because the founders are bickering and they're, they're fighting, they go through business divorce and the, whatever, right? Or they don't hire properly. And, and you just think if, if you were intentional with this founders agreement or just having a conversation, having a founders conversation, and the best answer was sometimes we don't, we're not ready to do this. That's so much better than going, spending all the time and money to create something when you really aren't aligned from the very beginning of this relationship. Um, and there's been one company that actually, sadly, I kind of had to fire because they had two different people. One of them said they wanted this and one of them, and one of them really did want it um, on either side of the deal. And they, and I just felt like I was just taking their money and they weren't listening to anything. that I had to say. And I, I don't feel good about that. And that's Right. not, Yeah. Sure. not a good result for anybody. You take your own advice. You say no when, you know, Yes, Steve, exactly. Steve Jobs was, uh, you know, uh, famous for that. He, one of his strengths was being able to say no to the greater good. Right. Um, what was your biggest surprise moving from a kind of, you know, corporate law and then working for a, a major law firm and then starting your own business? Kind of well, the first six months. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. All the I didn't know this was holy going to happen. shit, all the yeah, all of the stuff that you end up having to do. And and I was never very I'm such a doer and I have this very specific ideas in my mind of how I want things to turn out that um that the idea of hiring anybody to help was, was really hard. Um, but I've read that book 10 X, you know, your success. And, and, and in order to 10 X your business, you've got to stop doing 80% and look for ways to delegate. Um, so I think that's probably been the hardest thing to let go of, of some of the, the marketing stuff. Now I love to get rid of, my billing stuff but that's my own fault because i'm i just hate the the tediousness of all of that that i stay up until three in the morning like once a month to make myself get through it Right. um 
Uh, so that organizing piece of it. Um, but I, I love the work. I love doing the work with the clients. I find working in the business to be a challenge sometimes, but then this way, these great, these trips, people laugh all that, that I come to Colorado so often. I said, you don't know how, how much benefit my, my clients get from me on those drives. Cause I am just sitting there constantly thinking yeah. of, or listening to a podcast and it makes me think of a client or think of a situation or think of an article I want to read And you know, so I leave myself these voice memos and I get wherever I'm going and, and do a data dump. So it's, it's, it's kind of therapeutical to, to have these long drives when I can just zone out and Hey, it's an easy drive. Very few people are. Well, it's funny you say that because in your email, uh, right before our conversation today, you, uh, uh, reference the song Colorado by Daniel Rodriguez, yeah. which I had never heard of before, but uh, a great lyric. I actually wrote it down because I thought it was fantastic, but it's, you know, the great American meditation, which is mm -hmm. driving, you know, like, with, yeah. but, you know, you think about your best ideas come when you're running or in the shower yeah. and draw, and yeah. it, the reason why is your mind is most relaxed. So right, you're, that makes you're more creative, so you're getting the ideas. So yeah, your clients definitely have benefited. Uh, yeah, from those long. Oh, they they all they're all used to getting, you know, voice texts from me. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere, hey, I've got this great thought for you, or I'm, yeah. I'm working through that problem we talked about. Here's an idea. Yeah. So, uh, Elizabeth, as you know, I love to help two groups of people. The first is yep. uh, recent college graduates. They're going to get ready to take their first post-college job. And uh, what would you uh, say to them in terms of getting that great first job and starting your professional career? Yeah, I, I think um, going and talking to people. I mean, as we were talking before, we started recording um the people you have as guests are some of the most generous genuine nice friendly people and i absolutely would have no qualms about telling any of my kids you know call up mackie call up Aunt angela call up harry and they all of them will take your call they'll all take your meeting they all are just generous people that want to share right their their wisdom and their ideas and their thoughts and 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 then don't be afraid to just to just take a job just to find out what it's like and it's okay if it doesn't work out the right. the greatest thing that i think that gen xers and 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 younger have done is to say there's there's no one path there's no one way to do this right. thing called a career and a life and um, it's start somewhere and then be prepared to pivot and learn how to leave a job. I, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I've left a lot of jobs and some of them are really good jobs that people thought I was crazy for leaving, but I always did so with, in the nicest way possible. I, I there were never a, a burned bridge. It was all very open and it was, it was just time to move on. And I remember getting to that point at Sprint when I said, and I was felt like I'd been banging my head up against a wall. Like, why don't they appreciate it? Why don't they see it? And I finally stopped and said, wait, they get to be who they want to be. 
and I get to be who I want to be. And if it's time for us to go separate ways, then that's okay. They're not bad. I'm not bad. I'm not an idiot for leaving. They're not a bad place to work. right? Right. It's just, we've, we've reached the end of the road. And I think so oftentimes, you know, and I don't know if this sort of the 1950s kind of mentality of like, you just got to grind it out for 40 years at the same place and that that's honorable. Um, I think the the great news is that for, for people nowadays is you can carve your own path anyway. But I always say, go and talk to people, go and hear other people's stories. It's going to make you feel better because everyone's career path is messy and all of it contains some bullshit right along the way. And, and if you've reached that juncture and you're not sure what to do, don't talk to your best friend and your mom and your dad and your husband, go talk to somebody who's been through shit like that. Yeah. hundred percent. The second group is now you, you're a leader or you're have people Mm -hmm. under you and you're responsible for in, in the org chart. Um, as these people begin their leadership journey, what, what would you, what advice would you have for them? So I, you know, I always go back to my athletic life and, and the idea of coaching and I know coaching has received it, it all. It means a thousand different things to people. Now it feels very blurry, but when I think about a coach, I think, and I, and I like to break it down by words, I cultivate. So you begin by cultivating a, the foundation of trust because unless there's trust in your organization, it it's not nothing's ever going to work. And I and I think again, I've said his name a thousand times, but Harry Campbell always had this habit of just he did walk around management, right? He just walked around and got to know everyone, and he tells everyone his story first. And that that vulnerability based trust of a leader to then cultivate that that trust among their 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 people is critical then you optimize you've got to optimize your team um for their success and that's in the processes and the operations and the structure right does the structure serve the team are, are do we have the right people in the right seats on on the same bus um and then you align that you synchronize you synchronize those uh those processes and, and operations with those core, core values if they're not aligned they're not going to be they're not going to withstand right when when shit happens and then you catalyze catalyze them by in their performance by having um through clear expectations clarity is tantamount you've got to have clarity and then shared accountability and then the the fat the last h is harmonize so always be harmonizing that continuously foster a balance of collaborative environment where diverse talents and voices and perspectives are all part of the conversation um and then and because that's how you innovate you've got to be able to you know all the time be innovating the only way we can do that is we have a diversity of voices that we're listening to well elizabeth i'm so glad that uh we got back together after yes many meetings you're you're great and uh i i can't wait for our next coffee or walking yeah so uh, thank you for being likewise. Yes, we've got to do the walking meeting, walking meeting. Yeah. So thank you for being on the corporate couch today and have you and your family have a, a great Thanksgiving. Likewise. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. It was so fun to reconnect with Elizabeth. So, you know, we worked together at uh, Sprint PCS uh, as you did, Joe, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, really one of the, you know, top three career experiences in my life. So it was it was fun to reminisce about that. But, you know, stuff I didn't know about her, you know, uh, I, I love that her parents got her a one way ticket uh, for, you know, she had eight hundred dollars for a one way ticket anywhere after college. She decides to go to Boston. I can't even remember the, the firm she worked with, but, you know, she left and to go to law school and got the hard ass award <laughs> at her first job out of college, navigates, you know, goes to law school. So that was fun. And, you know, I asked the very uh, probing, you know, law question on who's a better lawyer, uh, Mike Ross or Harvey Specter on the the the, the show suits uh, so but I you know what I loved about her lawyer experience and her law school but I liked how she explained it so she was being a lawyer you saw the whole uh, she said chessboard and it taught her a different way a new way of thinking uh, and she was self-admittedly not that good in you know high school and college she was just competitive so she wanted to get good grades but she wasn't a you know a a curious learner, she said. And then she navigates into Sprint, PCS, and then they merge with Sprint. And then she works for one of the biggest law firms after that, uh, after Sprint, Hush Blackwell. But, you know, she took a year off, not on purpose, she said. And, you know, she was just, she was very clear of what she wanted. I want to work for Hush Blackwell. And I, and I think it was one or the other, because then they merged while she was there. But, because she goes, but I want to, I want to leave at three o'clock to pick up my kids from school, but I don't want to work on shit work. I want, you know, and then she got into these projects, you know, that were special projects. So she was in the Dodd-Frank era and the uh, Economic Recovery Act. So she came experts on all. Uh, so I like that. And I think it's great advice for people, you know, be clear about you, what you want, because you're going to be happier if you, you go that direction. What about you, Joe? What did you take out of the conversation with Elizabeth? Oh, she revived so many memories of working at Sprint PCS. It was, it was an amazing time to be there. Matter of fact, I'm reminded of the great uh, Dickens quote from Tale of Two Cities, where it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's exactly what working at Sprint PCS was at the time. It was an interesting uh, entrepreneurial experience because uh, on on the one hand, we had we had whatever resources we needed, and if we didn't have them, we could just go out and get it. So if you needed some piece of software, or needed a piece of hardware, or needed a new disk drive or something, just go down the street to Best Buy, pick one up, bring it into the office, and boom, it was there. Nobody worried about who was going to sign for any purchase orders or expense reports or anything it was just it was it was amazing the amount of money that flowed through there and the amount of authority that everybody had uh and she uh talked about that a couple of times where she said where she was talking about how she was negotiating um real estate deals at the time and how she was apparently given more authority than i think that she realized or she thought that she deserved at the time but that's just how that experience was it was a different kind of entrepreneur experience than the classic entrepreneur experience. It was more of a what we call an entrepreneurial experience because Sprint was assuming the risk. Sprint was providing the resources. 
we were only responsible for the results that we created as a result of those resources. And uh, it, it's different than a pure entrepreneurial relationship where whatever resources you have that you have to spend is essentially your own stuff, you know, your own personal stuff. And so you've got to be a lot more resourceful about it. It was an interesting experience. It was interesting to relive some of that with, uh, with Elizabeth and look back on those times that was, uh, that was a fascinating part of my life. Yeah, I mean, when I was employee 55 there in uh, 1995, um, and our burn rate per day was a million dollars. That's what we spent per day. I'm not surprised. And and you and I spent a lot of that personally ourselves. Yeah, mainly on lunches. Lunches. Uh, just kidding if you're auditing us here. Uh, Joe, <laughs> based on that um, uh, and Elizabeth's great career, what uh, – leadership advice you have for our listeners today. Today we're going to go to that great anthropomorphic philosopher named Hobbes, who's a stuffed tiger owned by a boy named Calvin. Hobbes once said, a 15 second television commercial exceeds the American attention span by a good 14 seconds. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.